This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. When you buy a Lisa mattress, you're not the only one getting a better night's rest. Lisa donates thousands of mattresses each year to shelters and those in need. Learn more about Lisa at leesa.com. It's that time of year again when millions of public school students head back to the classroom. But an increasing number of students are getting their education somewhere else, home. The pandemic forced many families into homeschooling, and a surprising number of them are sticking with it. Homeschool enrollment rose by 30 percent between fall of 2019 and fall of 2021. That's according to research from Stanford University and the Urban Institute. In Pennsylvania, homeschooling rose by 53 percent, and in New York, it rose by 65 percent. The most dramatic shift in homeschool enrollment during the pandemic was among black families. According to a 2020 census household survey, homeschooling among black families in the fall of 2020 was five times higher than it was in the spring of 2020. More than three years since the beginning of the pandemic, why are more parents opting to homeschool their kids for good? And with the rise of micro schools, co-ops and other types of homeschool options, where does regulation come in? We take our questions to our panel and take a closer look at homeschooling after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. When you buy a Lisa mattress, you're not the only one getting a better night's rest. Lisa donates thousands of mattresses each year to shelters and those in need. Learn more about Lisa at leesa.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Let's get into it. Joining us for the conversation is Laura Meckler. She's a national education writer for The Washington Post. She's also the author of Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equity. Also joining us is Bernita Bradley. She's the co-sorry. Also joining us is Bernita Bradley. She's the founder of Engage Detroit. That's a homeschool co-op that started during the pandemic. She joins us from Detroit. Thank you both for joining us. Laura, broadly speaking, how has the homeschool landscape changed in the past several years? It's changed dramatically, to to tell you the truth. I mean, I think that we all, when we think of homeschooling, we think of mom at the kitchen table sort of by themselves working on it. Maybe they belong to a a parent co-op that fills in some of the gaps. But really what we see today is a big diversity of the types of resources that are available to families that choose to homeschool. So sometimes, as you said in the, in the intro, that could be a micro school where kids are going for even as many as four, four and a half days a week full time. It could be a pod. It could be a, a parent co-op that is much more formalized, that offers classes, might a- offer academic classes as well as enrichment classes. And we've also seen a change in the, as you said, in the types of people who are interested in homeschooling and the motivations. It used to be that one of the principal motivations, and, and it still may be true to the case today, was for religious reasons. Christian um, families who really wanted to bring up their kids with Christian values and incorporate that throughout their education. And that is still true for a lot of families, but there are also 
other motivations, too. There are people who are frustrated with their public schools for various reasons. Some are frustrated um, for political reasons. They think the schools are too liberal, or maybe they think it's too conservative. There's frustration about school shootings and fear of, of what will happen to their kids if they're in school buildings. So there's just a and just a wide range. I'm sure we'll get into more of this as, as the hour unfolds. But it's just it's a much more diverse landscape mm-hmm. than it once was. Can you give us the definition of some of these models? We'll hear you mention micro school, pod, co-op. What's the difference between these models? So it's somewhat squishy, to be honest. There are not strict definitions. Um, and in most states, none of this is written into law at all. But typically what a micro school is, is something that kind of looks like a school. It's a classroom with somebody, an adult there. Uh, it could be um, that person is not necessarily a teacher per se. They might be, but they might not be. And they're there sort of doing school together. They might be doing online programs. They might be, but it's a social atmosphere where they're with other kids. Um, co-ops are typically parent-run. So parents are the ones who are directing that. Now, they may hire somebody. They may not. They may The parents may offer the classes, but they're working together as families to support each other and to, for kids to have some interaction with each other and to do things that you couldn't do by yourself. And then pods uh, sometimes are families informally getting together and hiring a teacher. Um, there are also some companies like a um, for-profit companies, and for instance, a, a company called KaiPod, where what they do is they describe theirs as like a WeWork facility for kids. You can drop their kids off at these facilities. And um, again, there's an adult there to answer questions, but they're really doing their own online work. Bernita, you found that your homeschool co-op engaged Detroit in 2020. What was happening with Detroit's public schools when the pandemic started? Yeah, so as the, as the pandemic started, you know, most schools scrambled to try to support children. But uh, here in Detroit properly, we didn't have connection to Internet um, or online learning for families from May, from March 13th to end of May. Um, and families were really like picking up packets from schools or going to get lunch at schools. Uh, most of the schools, if anybody know in Detroit, uh, we have a lot of school deserts. So that could be anywhere from a couple of miles from home to right around the block. And um, families were asking for help, and but yet they kept getting pushed back like, uh, told that, give us time, be patient, right? We've never been through a pandemic as if families had been through a pandemic also before, right? And But at, yet at the same time, we were seeing our uh, counterpart schools like in Gross Point, three blocks away from our houses, like getting it. Their children were online learning, but we were not getting that same thing. So families were checking out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm the type of person that they'll tag when uh, something happens on Facebook or social media. They're like, hey, Bernita, did you see this parents asking for help and the school's not giving them help? You know, And so I'm trying to negotiate like I normally do about education, justice, and choice in the city, but it wasn't working. And so I started telling families like, wait a minute, while you're checking out, um, what do we need to do to check out? It doesn't need to be that you just, families were saying they were going to take a sabbatical year. And in a city where we only had 13% of our children reading on grade level in 2019, in 2020, we did not need a sabbatical year for learning. So, right? you, de- yeah, and so, so, so you decided to start Engage Detroit. How, how does the co-op work? How many students do you have? Who's teaching? What curriculum are you using? 
Um, so we we have coaches. We decided to get coaches. At first, it was uh, like large group coaching online, free. We were just doing it, um, getting families who had already homeschooled or teachers who had already homeschooled to get together with families and say, what do you need to do? Understand what the state standards are for Michigan. Understand, you know, how to learn with your child through this process. Understand how to even let your child guide the learning. That ended up turning into individualized coaching as we officially launched. And um, those families literally get to set up time with a coach based on their child's age level or grade level. And they're going through the whole process of what do I need to know? Um, How do I need to make sure I'm pursuing extracurricular activities or supports for my child? How do I navigate this process for homeschooling? And also on the back end, I'm doing the partnership supports where when a family or a child says they need something, I'm going to partner saying, hey, you know, this child is into music, MSU School of Music. Can you offer us some music classes for our children? Mm-hmm. Like more so advocating for all the children, not just that one child. In it. We should note we reached out to Detroit Public Schools for a statement, but they did not provide one. Laura, the Washington Post did a call out for families who started homeschooling during the pandemic. You received over a thousand responses. What are some of the stories you heard from parents about why they've chosen homeschooling over traditional schooling? We've really heard a wide range of answers. In some cases, there were parents whose children had um, have disabilities and f- special needs, and they felt like their schools just were not providing what they needed. Um, in some cases, it was uh, politics. You know, they didn't like the fact that their district, it was from a conservative point of view. They thought their district was... Um, you know, overly woke, they might have said, or doing things that they didn't like around issues of race. And then you have the flip side. You had parents who felt like their districts were restricting conversations about race, and they didn't like that. They were very uncomfortable with their kids in that environment. So, you know, it's all over the board. We mentioned, I was shocked by the number of parents in our call out who mentioned fear of school shootings. Mm. It was mentioned over and over again by people who um, just are scared. In fact, I have I have a friend myself who has a, a little one who says she's talking with friends about forming some sort of a parent pod homeschooling situation because they're so scared about this issue. So um, there really are a wide range of reasons. And, and I, I'll just want to add one more thing. I think there were a lot of families who maybe were thinking about homeschooling before, but just didn't really do it for whatever reason. COVID happened. They were forced into it, and they realized that they liked it. It wasn't necessarily people who would never have done it, and now they do it a 180. I think it's there were a lot of people who were it was they were intrigued by it for one reason or another, and then that that put them over the edge. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back with more of our conversation on homeschooling in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor ShipBob. Running your own warehouse is hard. But with ShipBob's warehouse management system, you can streamline operations and save money. Say goodbye to manual inventory counts, mispicks, and inaccurate labor planning. ShipBob's cloud-based WMS brings industry-leading technology, advanced pick-and-pack methods, and hands-on support from experts to you, so you can fulfill faster and save money. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. This message comes from Wondery with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black History's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's get back to the discussion with this message we got from one of you. I did try to homeschool my son during the pandemic, but it turned out that he really did not like it. It was just really not a good fit for his personality. So uh, we sent him back to in-person school as soon as we had the opportunity, and he thrived in that environment. My son was came in and did online school from the start of COVID. We were able to concisely and effectively convey information and get through the school day in a much shorter period of time. He returned to public high school, and uh, it was so uh, unwieldy that um, it really caused us to have second thoughts. We chose to homeschool our son during COVID and found that when he went back to public school, he was behind in math because we played too much. But on the other hand, great family time, no regrets, but do wish we had pushed harder in math. Kathleen, Andrew, Laura, thanks for those messages. Bernita, your daughter asked you about homeschooling years before the pandemic, but you said no. Why were you reluctant then? Um, So I'm a community advocate, and I'm always in a community doing work, and I just was really naive to what homeschooling looks like like as a parent. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be your enemy. I'm not about to sit behind a desk all day, like, get it done, do that. Like, right, I wasn't trying to be that person for my child. And then when I went through this process, I actually engaged in coaching myself. And the coach really helped me see what homeschooling was like. Um, I had met most of these coaches about three years before the pandemic happened. And I saw their children thriving and in environments outside of their home and how homeschooling really was. Like we got this myth that it's literally just sitting behind a desk and all day you're this this teacher at, with a ruler in front of your child making them get education. When I start realizing that education was literally everywhere and all the time and how well-rounded these students were, you know, debunked the myth of the child being this awkwardly, socially awkward child. You know, but I didn't know that when my child was in the fifth grade. Now, if I could go back, I really would. I would go back to that fifth grade moment and homeschool my daughter, and it would have probably been such a greater outcome for her. Laura, how is homeschooling regulated? Very lightly. Uh, there's there. It depends by the state. Um, in some states, there are essentially no regulations or virtually no regulations at all. In 11 states, you don't even have to tell the district or anybody that you are homeschooling. In some places, there are some requirements, for instance, that you need to teach certain subjects. In a few states, you do have to participate in assessments. You have to take a state test. In more places, you can take a test or you can submit, say, a portfolio of your work to show what you have done. But Really, these these are not you know strictly enforced rules. I think it's fair to say in the vast majority of the country. So uh, there are rules, but um, you know nobody is really checking to see whether they're followed. In some places, there are requirements for the parent themselves. They have to either have a certain level of education, or they have to take a course or something like that in order to be qualified to homeschool. In some places, any parent can do it. In some places, if you're actually outsourcing it. There are rules about that. But it, it's it's all over the board. And in general, I think it's fair to say there it's very lightly regulated. Bernito, what does that assessment process look like for your co-op in Detroit? How do you ensure kids are performing up to grade level, um, that they're ready to, to graduate when they reach that point in their education? What does that process look like? 
Yeah. So um, one, our coaches really support those families through that process. We actually in Michigan don't have to report when we're homeschooling, but it hasn't as a part of Engage Detroit, we asked them to commit to letting the schools know that they are homeschooling just for safety measures, just for the accountability, um, as well as I don't want unintended funds going to schools that aren't actually educating children. So to get to the accountability piece and um, assessments. Some of our families do assessments. We use Admentum, which is actually a platform that a lot of the um, exact path under Admentum, I should say, a lot of schools use that across the nation. And that exact path has proven that a lot of our children are far advanced than what they were when they were in regular school. Well, we reached out to Michigan's Department of Education for a statement. Here's part of what they sent. Quote, currently Michigan law does not require the simple counting of homeschooled students. Parents of homeschool students may choose to register their children with their local public school districts or not. Unfortunately, however, the inability to count homeschool children leads to an inability to determine the numbers of missing children in the state. The legislature should require the registration of homeschooled students so that we can get a better understanding of students who aren't being educated at all, who are missing coming out of the pandemic. This is a national issue and we need to address it in Michigan. Laura, I see you nodding. I'm sure this is something that's come up in your reporting. Well, yes, Michigan is one of 11 states that doesn't require you to even report that you are homeschooling. And, you know, there, there are a lot of issues that kind of spiral out of that statement, you know, from a point of view of the, of the state or the district, and you do want to know who's missing, you you can't figure that out if you haven't told the district that you're actually homeschooling. So that is a problem. You know, there also are issues, especially as more public money gets involved with what do we know about what kids are learning who are homeschooled. Some kids do very, very well. Some kids are able to move quicker when they're homeschooled than they would be able to do in school. But we also have heard lots of stories in our call. We heard from lots of adults who were homeschooled as children who say that looking back, they didn't learn anything, that, that their parents really were not equipped to teach them. So it is all over the board. Bernita, how do you assess how well kids are doing if they're performing to state standards, if this is the right space for them? Yeah, so... um I'll say through our process, we make sure that families have that overall support, right? Because while I'm a proponent for choice and parents choosing, I have never been a proponent for children not learning. And uh, um, the idea that children would just be sitting at home is not something that we came into this 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 walk for, right? Um, the other thing I will say is that our coaches, our coaches have had some children, some, some of their children go to some Ivy League co- colleges. So we're not just telling parents, right, like don't do the work. We're constantly reminding parents that in Michigan, you are the educator. And so what you need to know to educate, let's do this together to get the understanding. We offer professional development for our parents. We offer opportunities for parents parents to coalesce together to say, hey, if I'm not getting, what am I not understanding? What, okay, where do I get this curriculum? What curriculum worked for your child? Oh, this didn't work for mine, right? Like it's not this process where parents are isolated and alone in it or have to feel alone. The other side I will say is that they, we have to also look at how schools have not educated our children. So while there's this large conversation about whether parents can do it, the schools haven't even proven that they they can do it 
or are willing to reimagine education. And again, in Detroit, we only had 12% of our children reading on grade level by third grade. We also had a law that said that those children get left behind if they are not reading, but no accountability for our schools to say what they were going to do to make sure our children are reading. If you look at Minneapolis, they literally have a right to read law that was passed by a young lady by the name of Kulia Pringle. That right to read law came with accountability for those schools to have to do it. It is a shame that we are in 2023 and we have to pass laws to make schools give their teachers. Teachers have have even said, I'm ill-equipped to do this. I don't understand how to get a child to read. How have they gone to college for years and not know the science of reading? But yet when parents decide that they want to do it, it's an attack as if parents are illiterate and their social economical status determines whether they can or cannot do it. That's totally unfair. I mean, Bernita, I wonder, and I should I should be transparent here. I'm a product of Detroit public schools, and so uh, and have a number of family members who who have taught in the public schools in Detroit. But as someone who's now an advocate, a proponent of homeschool models. Would that be a useful tool, just having regulations in Michigan in place that provide a level of protection and assessment and accountability for homeschooling? Do you think that would be helpful? I don't personally think it would be helpful because there's no real accountability for public schools here. Historically, I've I've been... Historically, Detroit public schools have failed so many children. We've had the, the select group of families who say their children went to certain schools and they were successful. But if you look at the history, there are so many children who have been failed in public schools. That's And when I say public schools, I'm not just talking about DPSCD. So I just want to be clear. I am talking about a lot of our children come from charter schools too, right? And schools in brown and black communities really suck for children. They they dis, they push children out. They don't service IEPs. And parents have been known that, like, they've known that their children feel broken from the outcomes from schools. And that's not fair. When families decide to take it into their own hands and say, I can do a better job, especially when I'm constantly advocating. I've, I've been a person who have advocated for Detroit public schools, DPSCD and all of that. And advocating has made me literally look at education totally different because when you don't want to reinvent and reimagine education, there is something wrong with our system when you tell parents and children they're the problem and not your broken systems. Coming up after the break, we hear from the CEO of a private company that helps individuals establish micro schools across the country. More from you and our guests in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast, but now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Kelly Smith is the CEO and founder of Prinda. That's a private company that helps individuals establish micro schools across the country. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jen. Good to be here. So first of all, how does Prinda work exactly? So Prinda helps people open and run a great micro school. This is a format for education that's relatively new. You can picture 10 kids meeting together in person in an informal space. Uh, Tends to be highly collaborative, a lot of connection, a lot of personalization. So kids are kind of moving at their own pace and creativity. So you get this result of kids who just love learning, that are highly engaged, and making a lot of progress in their academics. What curriculum options does Prenda offer? Yeah, so Prenda supports the full, uh, the gamut of regular um, academic subjects, English, math, science, social studies. We also include bits of of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of social and emotional pieces of this as well, because what we're finding is parents are really looking beyond just test scores for their measure of what they're looking for in their child's education. So it's about becoming the type of human that's going to go on and and live a life of meaning and purpose. Now, as we've been hearing, standards can vary significantly from state to state. How does your curriculum align with those education standards? Sure, it depends. We partner in, in various states with, with the various entities. So, for example, New Hampshire, we have a, a partnership with the Department of Ed, and we've adapted our program. But we've built it around the national standards and then adapt as needed. What we're really looking for is what are parents wanting? And I think, as, as you know, parents want their children to be able to read. They want their children to do math. They want exposure and access to scientific thinking and an inquiry-led investigation of history and those things. So we've built around that kind of core set of societal expectations. This is what learning is and what learning looks like. And then we adapt where our partners require. So the individuals who sign up to run Prinda Micro Schools are called guides, not teachers. What kind of training do they receive? Yeah, it's a great point. So we don't have teachers in these schools. I think there's this paradigm that most of us picture where school is kind of a thing where the, the child comes, they sit in a chair and school sort of happens to them, done to them by an expert called a teacher. What we're really doing here is changing education to be student-driven, and, and it's about kids making progress. So these guides, we support them in being very connective, being supportive, mentorship, coaching, uh, encouragement, and then we provide them a whole remote um, army of, of resources, experts that can help coach on an academic situation if a kid's stuck on something. We provide uh, on-demand math tutoring. So if you get to a point in algebra where you know, maybe nobody in the room knows it. We've got tutors there to kind of back that up and, and support the learning. But the whole idea is help these children be empowered learners on their own, that the type of kid that will go out, ask questions and solve problems. I'm thinking about the importance of identifying learning disabilities early. How does that happen in a micro school? Right. So what kids are doing, picture in a micro school, we have what we call conquer mode and kids are moving at their own pace. They'll set a goal like You know, I take a benchmark at the beginning of the year. I see that I'm deficient in some of the math standards, and that's a struggle for me. So I set this goal with with my parent and with the guide together, and and it's really led by the kid. The student will set this goal and say, I want to get caught up in math. I want to be at the end of fifth grade math by the end of this year. And, you know, Prenda's program is kind of designed to help them break that up into bite-sized goals. They move through. Now, if they're working towards those goals and they're not making progress, that's where this this kind of these additional resources come in. So 
let's try a different way. Let's get access to different resources. The, the guide being there is as kind of a facilitator of resources, but also an emotional and kind of psychological support coach, right? To help this child not give up, not quit, because it, it, so much of this is is in their head, right? You want you want to be able to move forward. But, now, but some things you, are not in a child's head. If you're absolutely. talking about dyslexia or something like uh, that. Yeah. So I was just about to get there. You, you get to this point where it's like, we're not moving. Uh, we, we then have these academic coaches that I mentioned. These are trained, some of them with deep special ed resources, all former, you know, classroom teachers, people who are educated. And the guide working with these, these experts, really identifying, well, what are the, the appropriate interventions? What are the other things we need to do? What is your accountability structure? If something happens at one of these micro schools or students aren't meeting academic standards, who's responsible? Yeah, great question. So the ultimate responsibility here, I think, as you guys were just talking about with homeschool is parents, right? Parents are allowed to choose. Like, this is what I want for my child. And if I don't like it, if I don't get the the results or the outcomes that I want, I'm going to make a different different choice. So that's ultimately there. Now, what we've done is, is added some supports there to help our micro school guides be accountable to those parents and be successful in delivering what parents expect. So a whole set of tools and resources that help them be uh, be successful, not only in academic progress, but as I mentioned, really evolving to become the type of the type of human that I think most parents are looking for. Well, who is ultimately uh, accountable for that child's evaluation, looking at their progress and saying, yes, they're successful, yes, they're meeting standards, or no, they're not? So the parents are asking the guide, right? Just like if you sent your child to a private school, you would say, is like, are you doing what I expect you to do? Uh, are you not? I think theoretically, you should be doing that with a government run school as well. But I think most of us are just used to kind of a different frame where it, it, at least before the pandemic, it used to be, you just sort of default to I send my kid, everybody sends their kid, and we don't really think about these things. I think the point here is, is now you really do get to ask that question, like, what is education for me? What am I looking for? And is that happening for my child? And in terms of the people who are running the micro schools, the guides, as you call them, what is your process of assessing whether they're working effectively or not? So we are not their boss. They're running independently. They're running a micro school. So ultimately, we are there as a provider to help them and support them. If parents don't choose them, then they won't have a micro school. There will be none. Now, what we do, what we do is as a precaution for safety, we make sure that no one without a criminal background check we just won't sell our services to anyone without a criminal background check. So we're not going to enable somebody that's hurting children. But by and large, you know, the people that are out there are well-intentioned and they're trying to serve kids in their community. And ultimately, they're offering a service that the parents in their neighborhood are either choosing to accept or not accept. And, and last question for you, Kelly, what's the cost of your curriculum? Yeah, so the, the prices vary depending on where you are in the country and um, what comes together. Ultimately, a majority of the money is going to these learning guides that are running their micro school. So as a parent, you're looking at numbers anywhere from 4000 at the lowest for a, a full school year for a student up to some of them charging eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000. That's Kelly Smith. He's the CEO and founder of Prenda. That's a private company that helps individuals establish micro schools across the country. Kelly, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Laura, I want to come to you because you spent time with Prenda during this project at the Washington Post focused on homeschooling. What did you take away from what you learned about their model? Well, I, I also had spoke spoke with Kelly Smith for the, that piece, and I visited one of the micro schools, one of Prenda's micro schools in New Hampshire. And 
my takeaway was sort of twofold, um, or maybe three. First, I, I should point out what they're doing is very different than what Bernita Bradley's doing mm-hmm. in Detroit. And it, it, Detroit Center is not a drop-off program. The parents are really doing it, and they're providing them supports to help them. The Prenda model is different. It is dropping people off. There are parents who are working full-time and, quote-unquote, homeschooling their children. So what I noticed was two things it, at the one microschool that I visited. It was a very supportive environment. There were a lot of kids there who had had a lot of anxiety in public school, who were not accepted, who were bullied, and who felt really good about where they were. The the um, the woman who ran this micro school is just like a really nice person. She had command over over the space, and people seemed to be really happy. So that's why I would say on one side. On the other hand, on the academic side, I don't know that there really are the checks that you were asking him about. I, there, there are – they take assessments. For instance, iReady, which is a tool that's used in a lot of public schools as well, and you can see where you are. But there's really nobody actually teaching the kids. It is just doing online school in a room with other kids who are doing online school. That That is essentially at the core. You, you, you ask questions about the curriculum. What are they – how was it chosen? I mean, that there is support, but the idea that it's, quote, student-driven, it, what it really is is you're choosing which online program you want to do, and you're doing that online program. And for some kids, online learning w- works great, and other kids do need an adult to explain things to them or or would benefit for a, a class discussion about something as opposed to them just singularly. I also thought that there were some subjects that lent themselves more easily to this than others. For instance, writing. Writing is something where you really need a teacher or an instructor who could read what you wrote and give you feedback, not just on the grammar, but on the sentence structure. And are you getting the point? And are you supporting your offering supporting evidence? Learning how to write is a real skill. And I don't know how much of that is happening, for instance, in this, in these settings. I think that's a much harder thing to teach in sort of an off-the-shelf online program. Well, we're hearing from lots of you. Josh emails, our 15-year-old son spent most of his middle school years learning online during the pandemic. When he began high school, it was clear that he wasn't prepared for in-person high school. He was struggling in every aspect imaginable. We made the decision to pull him out of in-person high school and enrolled him in a state-accredited online high school program from Texas Tech University. He since brought his grades up and has been succeeding. We also got this email from Tish who says, I understand the concern of parents who feel the needs of their children aren't being met by schools. The fear I have is that with parents moving to their own corners, this trend will fuel the call for federal defunding of education, collapsing the Federal Department of Education. Many who are raising children have only the public system upon which to rely, and without it, their kids will have no other feasible option. Has this come up as a concern? Well, this is a this is a this is a concern, especially as I um, referenced earlier. These education savings accounts, which about a half a dozen states have, it's a very popular conservative idea in the school choice movement. And the idea is that this money follows the student. It's a voucher. But I think traditionally we've thought of vouchers as going to private school, which they do. Many families do use vouchers for private school. But this is a money going to homeschooling. So that raises questions about both the accountability side and it also raises questions about money being drained from the public schools because those public schools are based on per pupil funding, as we talked about before. And if you are not, if you more students who are essentially incentivized to do something else by getting those tax dollars, there is less money in the public system. And that 
you know, that that certainly weakens the public system. Laura, you're just getting started really on this project focused on homeschooling and how it's it's changing and evolving. What's the next set of, of reporting you're going to do? Um, well, I don't know if I should necessarily. Uh, we're we're looking at motivations. We're we're looking at demographics. We're looking at um, a lot of different elements of this, and we're open to ideas. People f- should feel free to reach out to me um, through the Washington Post. That there, we're trying to look at this in a very comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. And Bernita, in just a, a couple of sentences, if you want to leave people with something that you want them to understand about the homeschooling experience, what would you say? Yep, I, I like to just tell people that learning is everywhere, right? It is one thing for you to see a child struggling in regular school and then come home and see that they are learning and loving learning. Like they are brightening up, they are thriving in their own environment, and they're bringing education to you. And that's what homeschooling can be when parents actually have supports and parents even decide, like, I am no longer going to make my child feel broken from a system that will not choose to change how they educate our children. That's Bernita Bradley. She's the founder of Engage Detroit, a homeschool co-op that started during the pandemic. Also with us, Laura Meckler, a national education writer for The Washington Post. She's also the author of the new book, Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equality. Laura, Bernita, thanks to you both. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. When you buy a Lisa mattress, you're not the only one getting a better night's rest. Lisa donates thousands of mattresses each year to shelters and those in need. Learn more about Lisa at leesa.com. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.